Welcome to SWE Airborne. This podcast series is made possible thanks to the kind support of Viatris. Hello and welcome to SWE Airborne. This is your host, Claire Taylor, and this is the place where we meet the members of SWE, the European Scientific Working Group on Influenza. To kick us off today, I have the great pleasure of talking with SWE's leading light, member of the board since its inception and chairman since 2001, Professor Ab Osterhaus. Professor Osterhaus, along with many other accomplishments, is the director of the Centre of Infection Medicine and Zoonosis Research at the University of Veterinary Medicine in Hanover, Germany. Professor Osterhaus, may I call you Ab, it's wonderful to be with you today. Welcome. Well, thank you very much, Claire. And and especially, I would like to thank you for, uh, for hosting this series about a very important subject. I think it's 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 quite timely we are addressing this point now that we are at the tail of the uh, of the current pandemic hopefully. That's great Ab it's my pleasure to talk with such expert gentlemen. So let's get started then with the first question. Ab with all of your knowledge and experience did you and other experts see the coronavirus pandemic coming and how did you first become aware of the outbreak in Wuhan? Well, thank you for that question, uh, Claire, because it's the most most important thing we should be discussing today. And when we talk about pandemic preparedness, I can say that we, and that is ESWI, has been campaigning for pandemic preparedness from the last century onward. I remember organizing the first meetings in WHO in Geneva and well, there have been a lot of discussion. At that time, I remember there was very little appreciation in the in, in the scientific community for the pandemic threat. And being a veterinarian, having worked in, 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 in the veterinary profession for some time and then becoming a virologist, I have realized quite clearly that we are being threatened by zoonotic events all the time, viruses that cross the species barrier. That as such is bad enough, but there are viruses like the influenza viruses that can start spreading from human to human after having crossed the species barrier. And then we may end up with a pandemic. And so I remember gradually more and more meetings were being organized also in the WHO setting. And I remember before, not too long before this pandemic started, we had a meeting in Geneva with a number of experts, how to be prepared. And it was quite interesting what we were discussing about, about broader active vaccines and quite a number of, of let's say, scientific issues. And at a certain point, I had to give my lecture and I realized you know, that if it were to happen tomorrow, what are we going to do? And during the discussions, I asked, well, I can give my talk uh, and I can, can really say what we can do in terms of making better vaccines, etc. It's kind of the obligatory talk I should be giving. But what are we going to do if it happens tomorrow? And we all agreed that was the most important thing, but we didn't address it any further. So, so, so basically, we were aware 
gradually we became aware that there is a threat from the animal world. And the Mexican flu, the swine flu, had the last pandemic there has really raised awareness a little bit. But because it was considered to be a wimpy pandemic, most of the people thought, well, and not only in the scientific community, but also the public at large, we thought, well, these huge pandemics like the Spanish flu are really of the past. And I, I, I did not and do not believe that because I think the factors that have led, the predisposing factors that have led to the previous pandemics, they're still there and they're even increasing to a certain extent. So I think it is an illusion to think that we cannot be confronted by a next severe pandemic. And the interesting thing, of course, is when, when, when this particular pandemic, the COVID-19, when that started, I remember quite vividly at the very beginning, uh, I had picked up an infectious disease is spreading in Wuhan from person to person. And we don't know what it is. It's not flu because we have the flu network and we are quite keen to pick up flu in people and new, new viruses and rightly so. But for that particular event, it was clearly stated that, that the Chinese researchers they guaranteed that this was not influenza. And I remember discussing with my students at that time, what is the likeliness that this is going to become a pandemic? And we, 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 we dwelled on, we didn't even know at that time yet it was a coronavirus, but I gave the examples of, of the SARS coronavirus and the MERS coronavirus that we discovered. You know, I, said, I said, basically, look into this situation. Why were these infections, were, why were, were these outbreaks, why didn't, didn't they cause a real pandemic? And the answer that we found out with the group at large, I said, well, let's discuss it. What does the virus need to become a pandemic virus? And at the end, we all concluded, if this would be a virus that is transmitted from human to human before or without any clinical signs, if that were to be the case, then it might have pandemic potential. Ab, the word zoonosis, meaning a disease which can be transmitted to humans from animals, has become more familiar to many of us during the pandemic of the past two years. But for you, this is nothing new. In the course of your career, you have discovered more than 70 new viruses of humans and animals. Can you tell us what first attracted you to this field of work? Yes, I was. I was educated as a veterinarian. I was working at the, as a veterinarian for some time, and then I realized that infectious diseases are not under under control in the animal world, as also in the human world they are not under control. And I was quite intrigued by the fact that uh, foot and mouth disease that we still had at that time, but also, for instance, a disease like rabies, which is a zoonosis going from animals to humans, were not under control, and still a lot of people die from rabies, for instance. We know that every year it's more than 40, 50,000 people die from that disease in a terrible way. So that's when I realized that viruses are not under control. When I started my career uh, to study uh, virology after having become a veterinarian, I, uh, I was discouraged by all my colleagues. They said, this is not the way to go. Everything is under control. And I realized that that was not the case at all. And that for me was the start. Indeed, to see that viruses of animals 
cross the species barrier to humans. And at the end of the day, but these may even end up in a pandemic, a virus that goes all over the world, affecting all people. Today, our topic is pandemic preparedness or pandemic readiness in in peacetime, should we say. But we're just emerging from a pandemic. Is this not a a once-in-a-lifetime event? Why should we get ready for another one? Well... I think I think if you look back last hundred years, we have had five, six pandemics. So we have the, we have had the influenza pandemics, which were four. We have the still ongoing HIV/AIDS pandemic, and now we're in the middle of a coronavirus pandemic. So you can say it's once in a lifetime. And indeed, my predecessor in uh, in Rotterdam, he was he was really working on influenza all his life. And he regretted that he had never had never faced a real pandemic. Well, I shouldn't say regretted, but but he had prepared for that. And I should say, in my in my career, so to say, I've I've, I've gone through three pandemics. You know? So it is the HIV, which was the first, the, the AIDS pandemic. Then we had the Mexican flu, you know, the the swine flu, and then now we're in the middle of the or at the tail of a coronavirus pandemic. And how likely is it that the next pandemic will be caused by an influenza virus? And do we have any evidence for this? Well, as I said, in the last century, we have seen four real big pandemics, influenza pandemics. And uh, you can say in, 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 let's say in a century, having four pandemics, that means that if we extrapolate that to the future, you know, the likeliness that we are going to have another one in the next decades is 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 rather is rather great, and I I I think I think that even the conditions that we have today, and if you're talking about influenza specifically, if I see this at this time what's happening in the animal world, and especially when we look at birds at this moment, we see outbreaks of a new. H5 influenza virus in birds that crosses the species barrier to humans limitedly though but we see it happening in different other mammalian species we see it in seals we see it in foxes and the virus may tend to spread there as well so the the key issue is that if a virus crosses the species barrier to humans and now this avian virus is all over the place now then then in principle it, it can adapt to humans by starting to spread from human to humans and we have done a lot of work to look into what does the virus really need to become a pandemic virus so in terms of getting ready in terms of pandemic preparedness there's much i'm sure that can be done but first early warning systems knowing that this is happening now what does uh, an early warning system actually look like in practice well, basically, what I what I said before about about the history of this uh, this coronavirus pandemic, that when we first learned about it, was very important because what what our Chinese colleagues did when they saw this disease emerging in humans, they really they went were very quick on the ball, and they actually they characterized this particular virus and. That was in a matter in a matter of a week. The important thing is that we get on the one hand the information, the information from the population. Is anything happening? Do we see anything that's not like the normal 
the normal background infections that we see in humans, but also in animals. So we have to be very vigilant, follow on a day-to-day basis, follow what's happening in the animal world, what's happening in the human world in terms of new infections, things that we don't expect to be like like what we are seeing normally. The whole epidemiology there is quite important. So early warning means keep keep your keep your ear on the ground. You really look very carefully what is happening there and have that reported internationally. And we have to follow that up on the one hand and not just in humans, but also in animals. Okay. So the increased risk of zoonosis has been linked to intensive agriculture, especially intensive meat production. Would you say that curbing or limiting intensive meat production is an important factor in reducing risk? Well, that's an interesting question. I think I think uh, meat production as such, and especially when we talk about influenza, it is about chickens, of course, mainly about chickens, then indeed the way we produce chickens has changed completely. And I think it is important that if you if you if you really have a completely industrialized way of producing chickens and chicken meat yeah, and eggs you know, with with hundreds of thousands of animals together. If you don't have the proper biosecurity there, of course, it's like like light, lighting a, a haystack, you know, so, so many animals together. So that increases the risk. And especially if you do that in areas where you have a lot of migratory birds, it, 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 there's two sides to the coin because we also want to have more more animal friendly way of raising the animals but you can imagine if you if you have free range animals that the chance of them getting in contact with the feces of of wild birds is is, is much higher so it's 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 very easy to say uh, well the mass production of meat and eggs and 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 also for other species like pigs etc it's at the basis of it it's it is related to that but it's not the whole story how can a one health approach lower pandemic risk well a, a one health approach means that you that you with the understanding that human health animal health and also ecological health and environmental health they're co- very closely linked and we should and we just talked about the, the the viruses that cross the species barriers from animals to humans and sometimes they go back again to understand these things better and also look at the the environment what is changing are there major changes in the way we produce our meat or eggs or are there major changes in the week in the way we 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 produce other animals or we grow crops yeah so all these major differences there which have a profound impact on the environment if you see how complex these interactions are uh, it will be d- very difficult to really understand it properly. But the more we know, the better we can be prepared. So my message would be invest really in, in One Health-based research, understanding how these things are interacting, and that may help us in the future to, to prevent new pandemics from starting or being quick on the ball and then being very rapid in, in, in taking our intervention method. And then how about this term, non-pharmaceutical interventions, NPIs? Now, it sounds fancy, but it's what we've all been doing, wearing masks, staying at home, limiting our social contacts. Is this something that is effective in prevention or limiting an outbreak? And 
what can we do to improve social acceptance? Because we have seen pushback from populations in the Netherlands and, you know, in the UK, we have examples of politicians failing to follow the rules. How effective is it really, social distancing and wearing masks and so on? No, I think I think in terms of preparation, we should have plans ready. Yeah, and non-pharmaceutical interventions, as you said. Yeah, it means really having the possibilities to uh, to to stop the virus from circulating before we have pharmaceutical interventions. And pharmaceutical interventions, obviously, that's making a vaccine, making antivirals, making biological response modifiers. But but non-pharmaceutical uh, intervention me- me- uh, methods, that means that you have to be prepared. For instance, you have to stockpile your, your facial masks. You have to have gowns for the hospitals. You have all these kinds of things, which are not our specialty, of course. But it is these are relatively simple things, but they cost money, of course. And, and also your hospital capacity. At the beginning of a pandemic, usually you don't have a vaccine yet. It will be difficult to, to come with specific pharmaceutical measures. So that time, that initial time, you know, that is very important to slow the pandemic down, to make sure you buy time, so to say. And there are two extremes. So if you look at China on the one hand, very effectively, but to a lesser extent, uh, countries like Korea you know, that, had, that, had ex- uh, that had experienced with the MERS, MERS epidemic and still has, and, and, and other countries, but also Australia, Australia and New Zealand, they had, they had very stringent me- uh, methods on the one hand. And if on the other hand, you look at a country like Brazil or the UK at the beginning, they just let it go. They ignored it. And you see the differences there, the number of people dying, the number of people turning up in hospitals, etc. And so we are somewhere in the middle. And I think when we are talking about, about preparedness, it's quite important that these aspects are also taken into account. How it's, it's the social science. How do you convey the message to the, to the public at large that they have to do this and that and that and that. And, and that, is, that is a matter of communication on the one hand. But of course, our society does not accept measures as taken in China, for instance. And if that is the case, I think we have, what we have learned, and that was missing to a large extent, apart from increasing our hospital capacity, having all these practical things in place, you know, that that basically the the measures that should be taken they should the the they should be accompanied by a good explanation to the public at large and even then there will be refractory people and it's a very interesting point because as you say it's at the intersection of a number of uh, different issues and i suppose one of them is the sort of suspicion of government or medical authority in relation to vaccines. And do you, it's not your specialty, but do you, do you have an opinion on what the best response is, the best counter response to this is? And what does the, what does the scientific community need to do to get ready? Do you know, we've been talking about these different aspects sort of, you know, the societal acceptance and, but if, but if the if you don't know where you're sure a pandemic will come the next pandemic will come but you're not sure from where or how how, how do the scientists get ready 
Well, I think the first conclusion, of course, is that we did not do a very good job. We, we more or less failed. We could have done much better. And I think what we need to do is a collective action. Uh, I think in, in all sectors of life, because it's not an issue just of the virologist or the epidemiologist. It's, it is really the whole sector. It goes all the way from scientists to public at large, politicians, etc. We have to be aware that there is a role for all to play. And we have to see it more or less as an, an insurance policy. And if you ask a virologist like myself, what should we do? We obviously will say, invest more money in broadly active vaccine, broadly active antivirals, and, and, and those kind of things, which we have to do. But that's not the whole story, as we have seen, because acceptance of the vaccinations is an, is an important thing as well. And, and if you see what we, what we have spent in this pandemic in terms of financial resources that we had, had to use to, to counter this particular pandemic, it has, it has cost us so many billions of euros, dollars, what have you. And I think that it is important to realize if we just pay a, a fraction of that towards preparedness, as we do in other sectors as well. For instance, if you look, if you look in the Netherlands, you know, after we had a flooding in, 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 in 1953 or 56, everyone in the Netherlands is afraid of water. So we are spending every year billions of euros to, to keep the, 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 the levies at the, right, at the right levels, you know, and nobody questions that. And I think we should create a similar mindset for, for that. Spend money in peacetime on all these different sectors, not only on vaccines, but all these different things we were mentioning to be better prepared as an insurance for the next outbreak. Last century, as we said, we had more than, we, we, we had we had so many outbreaks, and, and, and then when I come back to the pandemics, it's only a fraction of that. So, so we had six major pandemics, you know, and there is no reason to think that in the coming century we will not have another six. And my prediction is, at my age, is easy to say that, of course, but it, the, my prediction would be that we get at least another six. Yeah, you know, and and given the change in our society. Yeah, the climatological changes, everything that's changing worldwide, we'll have more than six yeah, if we don't take the proper message. That is a really interesting point. So, Ab, if we're thinking about getting ready for the next pandemic, what are the lessons we can have learned from this one, from the successes and failures in dealing with the coronavirus pandemic? I think the most important thing is that we realize after or at the tail of the current pandemic, I should say, that we need to come to a collective actions that all sectors of life, uh, all, all different disciplines, this, that's the scientific part, but the public at large, politicians, policymakers, they should, should realize there is a role for all to play. And, and as if it were a an insurance policy should be made for the future, we should invest. And that means investing in, in, in all these different things that goes from early warning to all the different ways to, to combat the disease proper, but also the measures that should be taken for the public at large and the societal impact that can have and the acceptance in the population at large. And I think that in our response, it's very important that all these different sectors become actively involved. 
And what is the single most important step, even change in mindset towards becoming pandemic ready or pandemic preparedness? Well, it's it's very difficult to single out one of the points. This is an integral approach, I would say. So you really have to take you have to take all these different things seriously, uh, and not not let's say in two years' time, hopefully, this will be this virus will have become a seasonal virus that will pop up like influenza, and nobody bothers any, anymore. Like like for influenza, thousands of people in the Netherlands die every year for from influenza. Because they have not been vaccinated, yeah. So, so it's we 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 have to realize that this will go, life will go back to normal. But this threat is always there, and definitely with the changes in the world that we are seeing today, yeah, with the way we are we are keeping our animals, with the way uh, things are changing, the climatological change, all these different factors. We are too many to to sum up. We are going to face new pandemics, and we have to be prepared. And we, we can do it. And if you ask me, single out the most important thing, obviously you ask a virologist and I will say, we have to make vaccines that will protect against all viruses. And we, I think we can even do it in, at the end of the day. But that's not the whole story, as we have quite clearly learned, because our vaccines did not solve the whole problem. Of course, without a vaccine, we would have been in a much more devastating situation. We can all agree to that. But even the vaccines are not the panacea, so to say. There is, there is much more to be done in society at large. If, if alone, it would be about acceptance of vaccination. But, but there is much more than that. A collective and a societal response. This has been a really interesting conversation, Ab. I could talk with you all day, but unfortunately, that's all we've got time for. A reminder to our listeners of the range of societal and collective actions needed to prepare for the next pandemic. Ab, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Well, thank you, Claire, for hosting this this podcast. And I really enjoyed speaking to you. Uh, You really provoked me into making some very bold statements, and I don't regret it. Thank you very much. Dear listeners, I hope you learned as much as I did about pandemic preparedness from the dynamic, visionary, and sometimes rather provocative Professor Ab Osterhaus, the leading light of ESWI, the European Scientific Working Group on Influenza. Keep on tuning in to this podcast series, SWE Airborne. And until next time, dear listeners, stay safe. SWE Airborne is brought to you by SWE, the European Scientific Working Group on Influenza and Other Acute Respiratory Viruses. These episodes would not be possible without the team's efforts, and I would like to extend special thanks to our SWE Secretariat, our technical and IT teams, our arts team, and our host, Claire Taylor. The podcasts are recorded virtually, and we thank our guests for their participation in this inspiring and educational series. Talks are adapted to a global audience and are intended as recommendations and guiding principles. For any specific medical questions you may have, these should be addressed to your local general practitioner. Many thanks to our sponsoring partners, and thank you for listening. Thank you.